Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Broadcasting from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Ash purchased his boomstick. I don't know what you're talking what, about. What, Armies of Darkness? No Evil Dead trilogy fans here? Dude, um, I actually have things to do and read books instead oh, of playing childish video games. Yeah, bullshit. Lacked in protracted adolescence. Plenty of things to do, <laughs> like hang out with your cats. I want Dave back. <laughs> he was a generous host. I'm Jeremy Bean, and with me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Indeed. And Justin Schieber. Hey, I'm not a Teen Pop sensation today. I, I appreciate that. I never actually liked that joke. I, I never thought either. it was old the second that it happened. But, uh, but we, uh, Dave has stepped voluntarily stepped down and went into retirement <laughs> yeah. and living in an estate. Dave is not going to be with us today. Uh, our listeners are going to have to really bear with us a little bit this morning. Unfortunately, one of the doubtcasters is missing. Another doubtcaster is severely hungover and another... <laughs> Is Luke? See if so. you can guess which one is which. <laughs> but do please hang in there, stick around for the next twenty minutes or so, and you'll be treated to a lovely interview with Susan Jacoby. Susan Jacoby's going to be on the show. Been on a couple of times. This time we're going to be talking about Robert Ingersoll. Uh, she's written a new biography of Ingersoll called "The Great Agnostic." And we're really excited that she's agreed to join us. Anyway, a lot in the news going on. Yeah. We have a new pope. We are all on the edge of our seats. Last uh, week, uh, the, the uh, conclave convened, and uh, they a few days later, they chose a new pope, and he picked the name of, of Francis. After yep. several inconclusive votes, the Holy Spirit then moved them to have a majority rule. <laughs> uh, um, and then the majority finally went to, were moved by the Spirit to vote for Francis. Before he was Francis, right? He was Cardinal yes. Jorge Mario Bergoglio. And the word on the street was is that he was Birbiglia, the, I think the, it was. The, <laughs> the votes in the earlier pope um, were a were close because he was running with now that's the what I read too. Pope Francis, yes. Yeah, so in other words, he was uh, mm. viewed even at the previous election as being the next runner-up contender, major contender. Yeah, so and not, that, not and entirely that, a surprise that he won this one. During the last vote of that of that previous election, uh, he had told his supporters to back Benedict. Hmm. Yes, if you recall, we made fun of the fact that Benedict said he prayed not to be elected, and then he was elected, <laughs> which led to some interesting <laughs> speculations about the power of of pr- intercessory prayer. Usually, I think uh, posts of authority should be actually given to people who don't want them. I, I think that's generally a good measure of somebody's sanity is is not wanting to be president, not wanting to be pope, <laughs> not wanting to be emperor. That's what that we the way thing. we used to run things but, in this country, and that's why they didn't like people like Aaron Burr because he was actually seemed like he wanted it. Whereas George Washington made efforts to say, "No, no, I don't want it. Please don't elect me." But apparently, in Ratzinger's case, that that advice didn't really work out. He, regardless, this new guy, really uh, Francis, he he's, at least from a, a PR standpoint, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't look like Palpatine, so that's always good. He's got he that looks going more like the the dad from Arrested Development. So I'm sure he'll be flattered to hear that comparison. <laughs> you know, well, first of all, we have to give the nod to Ratzinger taking off in a helicopter. I think that was pretty awesome. I even saw pictures where he was giving a kind of Nixon-esque salute. Like did you see? Yeah, did you see that? The two. We're the not going to have Ratzinger uh, to kick around anymore. Yeah, <laughs> commies. Uh, but yeah, Pope Francis comes in, and um, right off the bat, he's doing things like surprise sermons in a Vatican parish, a smaller, less attended part of the Vatican, uh, where Pope Francis walks in and does a surprise impromptu mass. Apparently, the security guards are all freaking out because he's not doing the typical Pope Mobile thing that yeah. we, we're used to. He's wandering out into, you know, into the public square uh, where he's being greeted by tourists and people have their arms around him, clasping, clasping him on the shoulder and these types of things. His messages have been off the cuff and He's kind of like Jimmy Carter used personal. to be when Jimmy Carter took over. Getting out of the limo and doing the crowd thing and the Secret Service freaking out and everything, mm-hmm. walking the rest of the way himself. He's he's uh, managed to uh, gain a bit of a reputation for being a very humble pope. He apparently, after elected, went back to his hotel in person and, and paid for his, his room. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Okay, you have several charges so. on the HBO. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's why he paid for it. He didn't want anybody else Cardinal to see the pay-per-view. Cardinal Candy too. Cardinal Candy too. Yes, he has the. Re- and then even before he had a reputation as when he was in the, the Archbishop of being taking public transportation, so you could you know hop on the bus and there's the Pope or eating meals in his own little apartment rather than grand. So there was a lot of um, a lot of the coverage I thought was. Was over the top funny with how humble and, yeah. and his thing yeah. about that. But one thing that they overlooked though was that somebody can be personal, and this is like a Reagan thing too. Somebody can mm-hmm. be personally humble and chummy, and yet walk in and do policies that totally contradict that in regards right. to things like supporting, That's true. you know, poor people. So one of the things that he, the speculation mm-hmm. then turned to, or not speculation, but the the conversation turned to his history with liberation theology yep. when that was really mattered in the in Latin American world. When you had back in the, uh, you know, like 70s and 80s, a lot of the priests and lower level peoples doing things like, hey, maybe the church should work with the poor more and emphasize, and fight against these reactionary governments with the death squads and mm-hmm. maybe we should work for peasant uh, land rights and such. And then the church came down like a ton of bricks on them. Yeah, that's one of the prouder and more shameful moments of the Catholic Church was uh, the pr- pride, I think, because a lot of these priests in Latin America really were clearly on the side of the poor. Some uh, of them were even, I think it was uh, assassinated, what, uh, Romero, was it, in Guatemala yeah, Os- or El Salvador? Oscar, Oscar Romero mm. was was assassinated, and uh, that was a pretty big deal. They had, nuns were thrown from helicopters for their activism work, and in fact, uh, two two priests that were under Francis's care back when he was a Jesuit priest in Argentina they were living in slums they were living in ghettos and uh and living directly with the poor as a basically as a statement of how of how Christ wants people to take care of the poor right and didn't necessarily get support from Francis. Yeah, so the, the people were going back over his record during that time period. It's not as if so far that I've seen that they found anything that he actually did to 
thwart that. It just was more like maybe my impression was that he sort of just sat it out or didn't really say much either way and, and kept his head down. Yeah. The situation was, uh, for a little background, Argentine's dirty war. Basically, we're talking about the years from 1976 to 1983, what their government called the process of national reorganization. And yeah, it was one of these reactionary military dictatorships aimed at stopping the spread of socialism. Led by General Jorge Rafael Videla, who the New York Times described as an ultra-traditional Catholic, who employed torture and murder in in a self-declared crusade against godless communism. Often they would drug uh, the the leaders or, or take them into prison and then take them on these flights out over the ocean where they would just dump them out of the plane and right. get, get rid of the bodies. They would disappear them. Right. Yeah, and about that happened to roughly about 30,000 people uh, wow. were either killed or disappeared in this kind of way. And, and yes, uh, what you were saying earlier, Luke, there's, though there's, I'm sure there's been a lot of digging because it's always good to get dirt on a new pope, right? And there's nothing to show that Francis was a conspirator with this regime, uh, but there is plenty to show that, um, that he was quiet about it. Uh, he was 39 at the time that this military dictatorship took over. And he was the head of the Jesuits in Argentina between 1973 and 1979, which was the period that saw some of the worst killings. He was very criticized for, from human rights groups at the at the time and, and now for basically just staying quiet. I have a quote here from Frederico Finchelstein a historian at the New School for Social Research in New York. He says, uh, the combination of action and inaction by the church was instrumental in enabling the mass atrocities committed by the junta. Those like Francis that remained in silence during the repression also played, by default, a central role. It was this combination of endorsement and either strategic or willful indifference that created the proper conditions for the state killings. In particular, there was this incident where there were two priests, Orlando Yorio and uh, Francisco Yalix. Uh, these were the two priests that I made reference to earlier who were living in the slums. Well, the accusation is, the accusation against Francis is that while he was uh, head of the Jesuits there, he was kind of dealing with both sides. The military dictatorship was bothered by this kind of activism, right? They, they found this suspicious. Why would these priests be living in the slums? You know, are they promoting this, this socialist message? And Francis claimed that they were, they did not have the support of the Jesuit order. And there were even claims by, by these two priests that Francis didn't even tell them and kicked them out of the order. And then three days later, that's when people from the military kind of descended on these slums and ended up capturing these priests, uh, keeping them in detention, torturing them, that sort of thing for I think about like five years. The way it's portrayed by some of the survivors, right, was that Francis gave them up, didn't do anything to defend them, and basically let the military take over. And then that this is just part of his general policy of silence. Now, uh, Francis himself has said he actually did quite a bit behind the scenes. And, and I'm kind of sympathetic to this. I mean, when a crazy military dictator takes over your country, you can go out with a bang and make a big protest, right, as try an idealist. Or scenes. you can, yeah, try to work behind the scenes, right? right. 
go underground, work people's opinions behind the scenes. Well, of course, when the Soviets were cracking down on the Polish workers' movement, I didn't see the the church seem perfectly comfortable taking on a protest role in that case with the previous, previous pope. You know, we don't know about some of the details. Yeah, sometimes you have to go along to get along. And that's what they said during World War II with the Nazis and the Catholic Church was, it's you know, the church worked behind the scenes or they say things like, well, it wasn't like they were conspiring with the Nazis, but they just did, you know, enough to get them. I mean, who knows? But the point is, is that when it comes to like some regimes, when you have communists taking over, then suddenly the church can mobilize thousands of people in the streets, you know, fighting against them. But when it's a fascist dictatorship, they can't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm calling skeptical on that one. It's like, what would, if, who knows, what would have happened if they really would have said, look, the Catholic Church is not going to tolerate fascism and arbitrary detentions and things like that. Right. And I mean, this is an international institution. You might be able to get some power. Well, he probably wouldn't have been promoted like is what that. would have happened. I mean, when, when the, I've seen footage when Pope John Paul went to Latin America to meet with some of these people who were messing around with liberation theology. There's this footage where he gets right off the plane and meets some of these archbishops or I don't know, cardinals, mm-hmm. and he's waving his finger on the tarmac in their face saying, mm-hmm. don't you challenge, when I tell you not to support this thing, you don't support it. And these people are like cowering in fear. Huh. He really mm-hmm. kicked some ass when he went there and cracked down on the liberation theology people. Hmm. Well, as, as far as Francis's own involvement, there have been activists from that period who have spoken up and said, hey, look, he may not have said much or did much, but he most certainly wasn't a government collaborator. And you have one of the one of the surviving priests who's saying the same thing now. The article that I read was was interesting. This priest sort of indicated that he originally thought Francis might have given them up, but apparently some undisclosed conversations and meetings that he had during the 90s um. helped clarify his what the situation looked like from the other end. So he's in the slum. Everything converges on him. You know, all the military converges on him. He's basing his opinion of what actually happened on rumor and hearsay and everything and actually being able to meet Francis and some other people and talking to them during the 90s uh, had a clear idea of what was going on and felt, okay, these guys aren't involved. Father Yario, on the other hand, he died back in 2000, wrote in his own memoirs that Francis had done nothing, quote, he did nothing to defend us, and we began to question his honesty. So, so yeah. Sounds get, like we don't really have a lot of information on it. <laughs> no, no, we don't. At least enough to, you know, um, reasonably condemn the guy or doesn't seem like we know that's the temptation with a new pope right right to look for skeletons in their closet silence during a human rights tragedy like this definitely counts as a bad thing but the church has apologized many times since actually i should mention that instead of going soft on him one one point that i thought was interesting that came out of this came out of an article the international herald tribune uh pointed out that Human rights groups were angry at Cardinal Bergoglio because he he kind of he kind of dragged his feet on a on a on a making an official statement to apologize for the for the church's inaction during all those years. When he did acknowledge the church the church's failure to protect people in in the seventies, he then quickly switched. He wrote his apology in a way that was kind of a non apology and quickly switched blame back on the on the military regime uh, and this angered human rights activists but what digging a little deeper found out that his statement was actually given in response to trial testimony by General Videla 
in which he talked about the church's cooperation and their kind of cozy relationship. In fact, he he put it as the a quote excellent, very cordial, sincere and open relationship with hmm. the Catholic Church and its leaders. So I thought it was kind of funny that that was when he issued his apology, right? Uh yeah. was after after a uh, transcript of of this trial testimony we're getting out. We'll wait and see with Francis what happens. Yeah, um, well, we, we've talked about Benedict and his views and the things he said about the non-believing community, right? In this article by uh, Alessandro Speciale of the Religion News Service, um, it talks about how during an economical, an economical meeting where uh, within the first few days of, of Francis's papacy, he holds this meeting with all these different people, these different religious heads of various different religions, and uh, he, he gives a speech to them, and he talks of atheists, and he says, I'm sorry, the, the article says, but he reached out to those who don't belong to any religious tradition, but feel the need to search for the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God. So mm-hmm. he seems to be saying that... Um, okay, so that that's a pretty positive statement coming from a pope about <laughs> about atheists right. i mean i guess you could you could i mean obviously it has the god spin we're we're searching for the beauty and the we're we're searching for that to fill that god-shaped hole in our hearts right right but don't get is almost ahead of the yourself. subtext right after that uh, apparently uh francis echoes his predecessor pope benedict saying that the attempt to eliminate god and the divine from the horizon of humanity has often led to catastrophic violence Okay. So it's a kind of, you know, he he it's nice that he's he's you know, he's he's calling us allies. There's there's a quote here that says, you know, he he takes us as as precious allies in regards to the search for beauty and truth and and things like this. Um and and depending on what article you read, uh beauty and truth in regards to God. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a, a an article by the National Catholic Reporter saying that uh, he feels close to all men and women who, although not claiming to belong to any religious tradition, still feel themselves to be in search of truth, beauty, and, and goodness. And the other one says truth, beauty, and goodness in God. So it's kind of confusing. We don't really yeah. know. I couldn't get a transcript on what he actually said. But he he does um, – he did refer to us as allies, which is which is – more than Benedict ever did, so that's yeah. that's nice, I guess. <laughs> and and I also heard the qualified, uh, yeah, props there, I guess. It it sounds like he's at least the the public face of Francis is going to be trying to reach out to uh, right to he different seems to be groups, putting an emphasis yeah. on dialogue with with other world religions, um, which you know, for what that's worth. Yeah. That's also, a kind of high ranking member of the Eastern Orthodox churches uh yeah attended his uh attended his whatever what do you call it a coronation ecumenical meeting uh but yeah was was there when francis was made pope from the eastern orthodox right yeah yeah Uh, his name is bartholomew i believe but yeah i guess that something similar has not happened for a good 900 years ever since the schism yeah yeah so So that's that's, interesting that's interesting more i think what they're going to have to deal with though is that if they're confronted with secularizing europe on one hand so losing people to people like us and then having conflict in the third world with pentecostal and evangelical christianity 
they're fighting more for converts. Now, it used to be just a slam dunk that the Catholic Church could go into these countries and get all these people, but now they have, they're fighting it out with the tongue speakers, basically. Yeah. You have a couple of choices. Either you could liberalize and say, be more ecumenical. In that case, you won't hemorrhage believers in the developed world. But that, to that extent, actually, the more conservative policies are appreciated by the third world people. So like mm-hmm. Africans and, and some of the South American countries, they want to hear the whole we hate gays, don't take birth control, that kind of right. thing. The other option is to double down on the conservatism. I think that's what Benedict was and admit that you're going to have a smaller church in places like the first world, but it's going to be more purified core. Right. You're going to have a core of hardcore believers that are going to stick with the church and then just go for converts in the third world. So it'll be interesting to see how he's going to thread that needle. I mean, by all accounts, he was, you know, he's on the conservative side of things, but I think they realize that they have, they have choices to make about which side yeah. they want to appeal to. And the same with the Catholic Church in America. I mean, they've been hemorrhaging believers in the Northeast, the traditional strongholds of the church, white, Boston area people, but they're gaining in the Latinos that are coming in. Well, so, he should do – I think he should just do what he's already doing, which is uh, you know, um, do the cute stuff for the first world people. Keep on going out there and paying for his own meals and waving hi to everybody and hanging out like this is your chummy best friend pope and uh, the, the media will eat that all up and then you know, continue behind the scenes doing what he's been doing in Latin America all this time, which is fighting women's rights and uh, stopping abortion and birth control and all that. Advice from Jeremy Bean. How to be a pope. (laughs) A friendly atheist guide to Catholic leaders. I want to see uh, I want to see Game of Popes. We don't want an imp for a pope, but he's the smartest one. (laughs) The hordes of the Dothraki must be impregnated with them. I can't even follow what's going on. Anyway. (laughs) Who's the the Dothraki? Are they the Pentecostals? uh, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I need a flow chart just to understand the original series, uh, much less making it. Who's the hand of the Pope? I don't know, but keep it away from the children. I don't get it. Uh, uh, uh. Well, anyways, enough about all this Pope stuff, right? I'm I'm all Poped out. Uh, I, that, that wasn't even supposed to be a dumb pun. Well, I mean, it was backed by popular demand, so we had to say something. Uh, uh, I'm tired that's of right. Pope joke. <laughs> Enough of the of Pope Francis and bad Pope puns. Let's move on to our guest interview for today. With us on the show is Susan Jacoby, here to talk about her new biography on Robert Ingersoll, entitled "The Great Agnostic: The Pope of Agnosticism." Susan Jacoby, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's a real honor to have you here. I know your book, Free Thinkers, is one of the most oft-referenced books on this podcast. We're all big fans of it, so it's always nice to talk with you. Um, Now, you have a new book out about Robert Ingersoll, and I guess my first question to you is, how much do people know about Robert Ingersoll? Um, he's he's one of our favorites here, but as you're going around promoting this book, is Robert Green Ingersoll someone that um, people within the secular movement and within the culture at large are, is familiar with? No. Uh, even people within the secular movement, uh, while of course they're more likely to know about mm-hmm. him than other people, uh, 
they know him as a name. They don't really know how important he was, that he was really the most famous orator of the late 19th century, that he was a, in many ways, a far more controversial and better known figure than any of the big figures in the secular movement today in right. America then. You know, for a couple of reasons. Uh, partly because everybody everybody was more interested in religion then. Nobody was neutral about it. You didn't have like, a lot, you have to assume that a lot of the nuns are, are people that is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Right, right, right. Uh, some of the nuns are people who aren't interested really in religion at right. all. The, the apotheists. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't true in the late 19th century. Everybody had a position. You also had, in particular, American Protestantism, and while there were huge numbers of Jews and Catholic immigrants pouring in, America was an overwhelmingly Protestant country mm-hmm. in a way that, 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 it, that it isn't now. Uh, it's, it's still an overwhelmingly Christian country mm-hmm. if you talk about people's affiliations, but not nearly as overwhelmingly. And what was happening at the time Ingersoll was most influential was a split in American Protestantism that endures to this day. There were Protestants uh, who 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 were Unitarians, Episcopalians, uh, uh, Middle Methodists, that kind of thing, who said we're going to accommodate ourselves to the new secular knowledge represented at that point, uh, most obviously by Darwin's theory of mm-hmm. evolution. We're going to figure out a way that you can mm-hmm. believe in God and religion and still also accept evolution. And there were the fundamentalists, a word which was not used in the 19th century, but that's what they were, who said, no, never, the Bible is literally true. And this is when this split appears, and it is obviously a split to this day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Ingersoll did is he really reached out to those liberal Protestants who were looking for a way to accommodate their faith to secular knowledge and said, well, you know, I mean, that's great. He thought, you know, any weakening of fundamentalism was good for secularism. Right. He said, maybe you ought to think about that a little more, whether it's really possible. <laughs> not, not really the Sam Harris approach then. No, um, no. Oh, no, no, no. Ingersoll, Ingersoll, there were people, Ingersoll was very, was very different. He, uh, he, I mean, he could be, if you read some of his speeches, he could be scathing about religion. Certainly. But, yes. but he wasn't in general, and, and part of the reason he drove the fundamentalists nuts is he was very personally charming. It comes across in in everything. After he would appear, you know, in, in a town in Iowa, you know, the local newspaper would talk about, you know, how how deeply religious people were laughing in the mm. audience at free will jokes. <laughs> he was funny. Uh, he could draw people in without insulting them, even as he as he was insulting religion. <laughs> right, right. Now, just just going back a bit, so. Um, there's a real dearth of knowledge of this guy, and I, I think I, uh, we're all in agreement here that that is a, a problem because this is someone we should all know about. He's the great infidel, the great agnostic. Um, he was a public speaker, but um, just for those who out, are out there listening and don't know him beyond the name, um, who was Robert Ingersoll? What were the, the major themes that he discussed as he was doing his public speaking, and what's his history? Okay. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister, first of all. 
an unsuccessful Presbyterian minister. His father was an abolitionist, and he kept getting kicked out of a series of congregations for being too abolitionist. Mm-hmm. One of one of the great American historical myths is that religion in the North was always in you know always abolitionist, which isn't true at all. In fact, the conventional churches in the North until the very eve of the Civil War were much more concerned about maintaining ties with their brethren in the South and churches in the South than they were about abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Abolitionist ministers, I mean, people like William Lloyd Garrison were pilloried. Anyway, Ingersoll's father uh, fell into that category. So he wasn't a very successful minister. They moved Because to, he was such a social activist. Yeah. yeah. Now, he wasn't really a social activist either. He was just an abolitionist. Okay. Sure. Yeah. He, sure. he wasn't a social activist. And, and apparently, you know, he, lect, he lectured about – he lectured in favor of abolitionism like a Calvinism too. Unlike his son, he apparently was not a – look, Ingersoll, only he and his brother of his five siblings were, were freethinkers, mm-hmm. anti-religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he remained on good terms with his whole family. That's quite a trick. It shows, That's yeah, it shows, yeah. That's not it shows you how charming he must have been. Mm-hmm. But so uh, he winds up in Illinois at the age of 20, uh, his father's last pastorate, so to speak. And he strikes out on his own. Uh, he he reads law in the office of a lawyer as his hero Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. did. He doesn't go to one of the few law schools in the country. He was largely self-educated, uh, had very little formal schooling. Uh, so he comes out of that old tradition of American self-education, which mm-hmm. by after the Civil War was already disappearing. He became a Republican just before the Civil War. This is a Lincoln Republican, not a a Mitt Romney Republican. Right. Actually, yeah, there were Mitt Romney Republicans later on, Mm -hmm. but the Republican Party was formed during the Civil – as, you know, about the civil slavery and and the Union. Uh, And he had had strong political ambitions. He was appointed uh, attorney general of the state of Illinois uh, by the governor after Hmm. the Civil War. But that in, was in it. which he served. In which he served. But that was his last office, elective or appointed, because he starts making in Illinois at first anti-religious speeches. Uh, in particular, he start he starts pointing out after the war that religion has nothing to pat itself on the back hmm. about ending <laughs> slavery. For not that he didn't he had great respect for Wendell Phillips and Lloyd Garrison sure. and all sure. of the religious abolitionists, but he always made the point that they were not the majority. Mm-hmm. They were not the organized church. Mm-hmm. They were dissenters from it. This did not earn him any friends going around the state of Illinois and saying that these churches had not done much about slavery for for most of their existence. So once he starts getting a reputation for anti-religious oratory, his political career as a candidate in the Republican Party is over, and he made that choice. The odd thing is, I mean, the thing that when people think about the Republican Party, they think about today's Republican Party. But the odd thing is, is even though he couldn't be a candidate for elective office because of his anti-religious views, he he was such a fine orator that his endorsements were were sought mm-hmm. by Republican candidates really almost until his death. 
Uh, but he couldn't be appointed to anything. Uh, he, as I said, when he, when there was talk of Rutherford B. Hayes appointing him ambassador to the new unified state of Germany, it was said he couldn't do it because not believing in God, he couldn't say, mein Gott. Okay, which is the <laughs> most common, you know, like people say, God today, my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which I was caught up. His, Themes were broad, and uh, I, I, he did several things. I mean, he did everything, really. Uh, one of them was he revived the reputation of Thomas Paine. The point he wanted to make was America did have a secular history, mm-hmm. which had been forgotten by then. You know, the inheritance from the secularism of the revolutionary founders had been forgotten. He, over and over, he pointed out that the Constitution doesn't mention God, that ours was the first secular government not tied to a church in the world. Uh, The second thing he did is he was uh, the great popularizer of Darwin's theory of evolution was, of course, Thomas Henry Huxley. Mm -hmm. But Ingersoll, as far as the American population, he traveled the length and breadth of the country. He spoke in every state but three, all of them in the Deep South, uh, he. The other thing he did was he explained Darwin's theory of evolution in terms that people could understand. Right. And again, with humor, in a way that perhaps uh, he knew a lot about science, although he wasn't trained as a scientist. Mm-hmm. And so, so when when he he opened his standard lecture on Darwin in the early years with you know just saying that his first thought when he read on the origin of species was uh, how awful it will be for the nobility of the old world to realize they're descended from the Duke Orangutan and the Princess chimpanzee <laughs> big laugh but it's a way of you know it, it's a way of reaching people that kind of lectures about you're wrong about everything you've believed your whole life right. don't go third he applied his views about religion to the social problems of the day, which were so like ours. Every political issue that still divides America today originates in this last quarter of the 19th century. Immigration, women's rights, Mm. how resources are to be distributed, the rights of labor, Mm. science, what role it should play. He applied his views as, and, and he always insisted, by the way, there was no difference between atheism and agnosticism, right, right. Uh, although he was called the great agnostic by others. Mostly because atheist was even more pejorative than, oh, than it yeah. is now. And, yeah. and, 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 and then as now, the word agnostic was invented by Thomas Henry Huxley. Right. Just, just it was to, a new word. Just Pretty to get around this problem. Yeah. It's a brand new word. Atheist is a much older use word and was used as pejorative. In fact, when atheist is first appeared as a pejorative is, is pagan Romans mm-hmm. called Christians right. and Jews atheists <laughs> right. because they were against their gods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, nobody knows that, but uh, but it's it's very funny actually. An atheist, an atheist in use, say in Rome in the early Christian era, was somebody who wasn't a polytheist. You only believe in one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They only believe in one. What's that about? But Ingersoll never really hid behind that. Uh, term agnostic. No, not at all. Not at all. Whenever he was asked, he said it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. He said an atheist can't prove there's no God either. Mm -hmm. We just say on the basis of the evidence we see in this world, we don't think so. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Smart guy. Uh, What I was amazed reading your biography was just how ahead of his time he was on so many issues. 
Uh, particularly, I really enjoyed the fact that you included uh, an appendix on containing his thoughts on vivisection. Ah. Uh, we've argued in favor of some animal rights stuff before on the show, and even amongst secular liberal atheists, you get a lot mm-hmm. of pushback. And here he is in the 19th century arguing Way passionately. Well, cool. what's really yeah. interesting is this got him in trouble with some of his social Darwinist friends hmm. who basically thought about thought about lower animals as, you know, as people without rights, as indeed they thought a lot of immigrants were completely hmm. inferior to white to hmm. white people. Uh, this is a part of this is a part of the chapter of in the history of the scientific wing of the free thought movement that it's it's not it's not such a pretty chapter and people people yeah. don't like to talk about it. Uh, I, I I mentioned this in all of my speeches. I mean the things Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Margaret Sanger had to say about about immigrants and their capabilities were mm. I mean they were really they were really disgusting. Ingersoll mm. was ahead of his time. He, he would talk about uh, and also most free thinkers also although they'd been abolitionists they didn't think that former slaves could ever be the intellectual equals right. of whites. And Inger, Ingersoll said about that the same thing he said about women. How do you know when people have been systematically denied education, mm. kept away from reading and numbering and don't haven't been taught anything about mm. Science. How can you know what their intellectual capabilities are when they when they've been when they've been held down in this way? And about vivisection, to return to that, uh, animal rights was regarded by a lot of scientists as you know sentimentalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, what Ingersoll said, it was they who weren't looking at the evidence to say that animals don't feel pain. You have to <laughs> shut your eyes and blind yourself to the evidence of your own right. eyes or, or what you hear when a dog is hurt or something like that to say that they don't feel pain. Mm-hmm. And he also said, I mean, here is the thing. He never just made ad hominem comments about it. He had talked to a lot of scientists and doctors who convinced him there was nothing that could possibly be learned from pain experiments on living animals Mm. that could not be learned through autopsies and that if you could learn how much pain an animal could stand before they died, it wasn't in any way useful information at all. So there was no excuse for it. And then he says in his letter to his friend in 1891, this wonderful thing he said, people who will do this without a thought to animals will one day use the same justification mm-hmm. for doing it to human beings. You know, of course, you know, thank you, Dr. Mengele. This is 50 <laughs> years before yeah. Dr. Mengele. But how right can you be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and the interesting thing to me about Ingersoll is we've recently seen uh, uh, some conflict in the atheist free thought movements of those who say, look, we're only here to criticize religion, to talk about um, you know, separation of church and state perhaps, but not these social issues. And then there's the other side um, that I think we fall into where we say, no, we should be talking about things like gay rights, women's rights, that sort of thing. Ingersoll was very much in, in that camp. Yeah, uh, well, Ingersoll basically the idea of being non-religious and and not applying that to the issues of the day hmm. was something that was was really alien to Ingersoll. Yeah. And and I don't know what use. I mean, the most common accusation made against atheists is that they believe in nothing. Hmm. Uh, the fact is is that atheism 
has, and I don't mean to say that, you know, an atheist should get up every morning and look in the mirror and say, hi there, you're an atheist. No, it's just that atheism, not not accepting divine authority as the answer to social questions, it affects everything about the way, it affects everything from our views on assisted dying laws uh, mm-hmm. for people who are who are ill and at the end of their lives to contraception. I mean, every social issue in this country that's controversial is controversial because be, because they originate in religion. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, you know, you you look at you look at the whole the whole thing about gay rights. This has been a quarrel about religion and how much people's religious beliefs should be written into law. It's the case with everything to do with abortion and contraception. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in, in some respects, it's also – it has to do with attitudes about public education. Mm-hmm. Uh, is everybody entitled to an equal education? I mean these things – these things, some more, some less – but they have to do with what your views are about religion, you know. And you know, you know, did God make the mighty mighty and the weak weak, or is this a human-made institution? Mm-hmm. Uh, everything we do that can be changed by what human beings do. I used to be a big fan of biographies, and I seldom read them anymore because I'm tired of being disappointed and disillusioned <laughs> with a lot of my heroes. Yeah, yeah it's awful, isn't it? Only there's only two that I, I think haven't disappointed me yet, and that's Thomas Paine and Robert Ingersoll, which they're so closely connected. Well, a review in the New York Times of my book criticized me for having nothing bad to say about Ingersoll. <laughs> I, that's now, where I was going now, next. <laughs> now, 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 part of that is part of that is it's just this Yale University Press series of American icons. It has a strict forty thousand word limit, and I frankly didn't think that. That in a four, I wanted to talk about Ingersoll in what was as the order in Freethinker. Now, Ingersoll was a big trial lawyer. Uh, he defended a lot of railroads in a lot of lawsuits. Mm. Uh, he was he was the chief litigator in 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 what were called the Star Root trials. I won't take up your time uh, <laughs> and and bore you with why they were called Star Roots. It's because when the, when they had to write down the roots of the Pony Express, a lot of the the clerks got tired. So they just put stars there for all these place names. So that's how they got, they got to be called the Star Roots. And of course, these postal contracts were very lucrative. And half of the people in Ulysses S. Grant's administration were involved in them. And and Ingersoll was the was the defense counsel. And in fact, they were acquitted not because they weren't guilty, but because 19th century juries also, like 20th century juries, did not like conspiracy cases. Mm-hmm. And there was no direct evidence. It was all wow. it was all conspiracy case. It's not that they didn't do it. It's that there wasn't any evidence that they did it. But I mean, I could have gone into this in some earlier, longer in the early 20th century, but it doesn't seem to me to be the the interesting thing. And it's not exactly something bad. It's just a a whole other side of his career. His last appearance in court was defending one of the last people in America accused of blasphemy in the state of New Jersey. Wow. He lost. Mm -hmm. That's a tough tough uh, case to to win at that uh, point in history too so yeah, he can hardly be blamed for that no he tried i i suppose rhetorically we could always ask though um ingersoll himself though was more of a popularizer he didn't uh he didn't come up with a lot of these ideas on his own he was popularizing the ideas of others he 
He didn't make a whole lot of headway on these social issues, even if he was ahead of his time. He didn't make a whole lot of headway on these social issues. As evidenced and, by uh, the fact that we're still, we're still fighting uh, we're for still the same things. Yeah. Um, and does that justify not paying attention to him in some <laughs> people's mind? Slow pitch softball. Yes, that's exactly what that <laughs> well, was. <laughs> uh, well, as I say in my book, Set him up, knock him history down. isn't a hundred yard dash. It's a mm-hmm. relay race. And the influence of people, you know, cannot be estimated in terms of do they make social change today. Uh, the fact is, uh, the, one of the big things that Ingersoll did was he revived the memory of pain. Mm-hmm. And you have these people who keep an alternative version of ideas alive are very important in history, but because things don't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't just wake up, although that the, the exception seems to be gay rights, as though it's as though everybody's gr- awakened to that yeah, overnight. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. But in general, it takes a long time when you think of when you think of what an old human institution slavery is. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the few people who were against slavery in the ancient world, and there were, there always are people, does that mean that they were worth nothing because they didn't succeed then? In the case of Ingersoll, he carried forth all these ideas as a bridge into the 20th century. He is a direct ancestor of today's new atheists. Uh, As I I close my book with a letter to the new atheists, whom I don't think pay Ingersoll enough attention, Mm -hmm. and I think, frankly, the reason they don't is just that he was called the great the great agnostic and they, they think mistakenly he was one of these wishy-washy people <laughs> who was backing uh, away from his views uh, and I think that they, they ought to acknowledge their debt to we mm-hmm. ought to acknowledge our debt to this guy because he fought for these things at a time when it was harder to fight for them more important there is no question he would have had a high-level political career. Whether, as some newspapers said on his death, he would have been president of the United States, I don't know. Oratory was a lot more important then <laughs> as, a, as, a, as for the candidacy for the presidency than it is now. But who knows? But he certainly would have had a high-level political career. And he gave it up to do this, to, battle, you know, to fight the battle for reason. You know, who, do, who do we have in public life like this today who gives up their ambitions uh, you know, to vote their convictions. I mean, right. n- nobody almost, and especially for this cause. So I think the the idea that because he didn't change all of America's mind that he deserves to be an obscure figure is ridiculous. I mean, look, a hundred years from now, that is of global warming has an oh, I forgot, global warming isn't real, <laughs> right? It's a it's a liberal it's a liberal commie socialist atheist plot. If global warming doesn't envelop us all, a hundred years from now, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, our equivalents a hundred years from now are going to know who they are. But the fact is, is I don't think any of these people are nearly as influential in their society today as Ingersoll was in his, Hmm. although they're very important. But you can't – because somebody is speaking for a minority viewpoint doesn't mean that they don't have an influence on the minds of their generation, even if they don't change everybody's mind. And one one of the great things about your book and a talk that I heard was you you pointed out how many people – uh, were inspired by Ingersoll, big names. His, some of his contemporaries, some of them a lot younger people who lived on and played a big part in the 20th century. 
Clarence Darrow, Margaret Sanger, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Walt Whitman. Uh, Eugene Debs, one of my Eugene favorites. Eugene V. Debs, yeah. Robert M. La Follette, the leader of the progressive movement mm-hmm. until his death in 1924. Yeah, Debs. Debs met, and, and Debs, I mean, I mean, saw was a gold standard Republican, and Debs, of course, was a socialist. Mm-hmm. And the first time he met him as a young man, uh, he met him giving a speech in Indiana, and Ingersoll was headed to give another one in Cincinnati, and Debs bought a ticket and jumped on the train because he wanted to talk to Ingersoll, traveled all the way to Cincinnati so that he could do that. And it's very funny. Uh, uh, in, posted in Slate.com uh, this week is an article by a friend of mine named John Swansburg, who's a, who's editorial director at Slate. About a curious figure, General Lew Wallace, a Civil War general, who is the author of the most popular biblical novel of the late 19th century, Ben Hur. <laughs> and Ingersoll, he got his idea. Ingersoll, uh, both Wallace and Ingersoll were at the Battle of Shiloh, and they didn't meet, of course, there were a lot of soldiers at Shiloh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but years later on a train, uh, when Ingersoll was famous, General Lee Wallace ran into him, and a talk with Ingersoll about religion, uh, Wallace said, gave rise to his idea of writing Ben Hur. He inspired uh, Ben Hur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it, it is. It is really. It is really a weird story. That is weird. But Ingersoll Maybe. would talk to anybody. And and actually, you're probably one of the things Ingersoll was pointing out to him over and over is that, you know that all all these founders of Christianity were Jews. I, I can see <laughs> I can see how a but but that's the kind of guy Ingersoll was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had he had good relations with almost everybody except the the anti the, the people mm-hmm. who practiced vivisection. Mm-hmm. It's about the strongest uh, statement he made. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for what you do to keep his voice alive today and to introduce a new generation of people to Ingersoll and his writings. Uh, the one last thing I want to say is is one of the things that you bring out so well in your book is his sense of humor and oh, how effective so, that was. And, and you know what? One of the things I want to point out is most of Ingersoll's writings, important speeches – are now online at infidels.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see, when you read them, you can see the guy hardly could write a, write a dull word. Mm. They're, people re- will really enjoy looking them up and reading them. And while a lot of libraries jettisoned their 12-volume edition of his collected works uh, a long time ago, that's why I own one, mm. most of his mm. speeches are online now. All of his important speeches are online. Yeah, and I I certainly encourage everyone out there to check them out. There's uh, um, editions of his speeches, print and online, and uh, highly entertaining and remarkable in every way, I think. And if you go online to doubtcast.org, you can find a link there to uh, Susan Jacoby's new book, The Great Agnostic. Susan, uh, thank you so much for joining us again on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you. It's always fun to be here. Doubtcast.org. I love it. (laughs) So have you guys ever read a lot of Ingersoll yourselves? I am embarrassed to say that I have not. I have. I visited his little house that you can tour in Dresden. Uh, by the Finger Lakes and the shores of the Finger Lakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't get a lot of traffic there. I think today it was very sparsely attended, but I think that that whole area when you do the Free Thought Trail, you can mm-hmm. look this up online with like that's Tom Flynn's 
one of his projects. Yeah, Tom the, Flynn's baby. He linked these together. It actually brings it together of how – man, what would have been like to live in, in upstate New York in like the 1800s when you had – Religious movements like the, you know, the, the Mormons were in Elmira with their golden tablets of Joseph Smith. They called it the burned over district because they had so many like waves of fanaticism. Yeah. You had the, the, the uh, millenarians, were they? The group that was in the great disappointment where they went to the mountaintop and didn't get taken up. There's uh-huh. like thousands yeah. of them. That was in New yeah. York, the area there. All in this tiny little region. And then the free thought people. So between Rochester, you had Frederick Douglass and then the women's thing, uh, in, in Elizabeth, the, uh, Elizabeth Katie Katie Stanton. Stanton and, uh, yeah. And and then uh, in Elmira, you have the Mark Twain house there where you, had, you can visit his writing cottage. Cornell, of course, is a, is a big place in Ithaca where you have the mm-hmm. uh, Carl Sagan uh, monuments right. there. You can visit. So if you just go up and down the Finger Lakes, you can tour all these places. But Ingersoll's house is there too. Or, too so you can – all his artifacts are there. Yeah. And you can – I've, I've never, I've never been there, but I, yep. I, isn't there a, there's like a wax cylinder recording yeah, you that hear Edison his, made? You can hear the voice that, uh, that Edison recorded on this really scratchy cylinder. So we yeah. really don't have, it's kind of primitive. So you don't have, probably it's not a good, um, approximation of what it would have been like to hear somebody speak live. Because you're only hearing the high end. Yeah. That, that, right. That's why I tried, I was going to play it for, on the show and the, Audio quality is just so terrible. By, by but, all um, accounts, though, that when he would do his actual lectures, I mean, this is before the days of PAs when you had mm-hmm. to have your voice boom out over this auditorium. Yeah. He probably was able to project in a theatrical way and yeah. entertain these people and keep them wrapped for like two or three hours that they're sitting there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The definitely remembered as a really great orator. And yeah, and when I was listening to that, wax cylinder recording it was like uh this doesn't sound like the epic guy they're making him out to be but of course right it's the conditions under which that recording was made yeah i think that the the thing that's that that susan jacoby's book really brings home when she talks she includes a thing uh that uh, a lot of his views on issues are, are remarkably prescient Anti-vivisection, um, for example. Right. I didn't even know that, that that people were like that back then, where he was anti, you know, animal cruelty. Hmm. Um, anti- Did you read his es- his short little essay on vivisection at the end of that book? No, I haven't got to that part yet. It is um, it is ruthless, but yeah, I was blown away how powerfully he spoke out against vivisection. I want to read just a bit out of um, one of his uh, one of his essays on the subject. Quote, vivisection is the inquisition, the hell of science. All the cruelty which the human or rather the inhuman heart is capable of inflicting is in this one word. Below there is no depth. This word lies like a coiled serpent at the bottom of the abyss. We can excuse in part the crimes of passion. We take into consideration the fact that man is liable to be caught uh, by the whirlwind and that from a brain on fire the soul rushes to a crime. But what excuse can ingenuity form for a man who deliberately, with an unaccelerated pulse, with the calmness of John Calvin, uh, (laughs) seeks with curious and cunning knives in the living, quivering flesh of a dog for all the throbbing nerves of pain? The wretches who commit these infamous crimes pretend that they are working for the good of man, uh, that they are actuated by philanthropy, and that their pity for the suffering of humans drives out all the pity for the animals they slowly torture to death. But those who are incapable of pitying animals are, as a matter of fact, incapable of pitying men. I mean, that's (laughs) – that is some strong stuff. But, of course, almost all his writings are, would you say, polemical in that way? 
they're not these Peter Singer kind of cool, calm, dispassionate reason trying to get you to this conclusion. They're 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 righteous, you know. Well, yeah, I think he was known for for the when you when you're talking to an audience like that, that's a general audience. I think he has to walk a line to have some intellectual content, but also to have some rhetorical power. Mm-hmm. Right. If right. you were just up to the, go there and lay argue, arguments like you said in a Peter Singer way, you'd lose half the audience because right. they would be like, so what? You know, so what? But whereas it, you have to be able to, to like keep people's uh, interest in yeah. what you're talking about and have some passion in your speech. Right. Well, and he was effective. I mean, reading through several of his speeches like that. I mean, this is the stuff we give the new atheists crap for being provocative from time to time. What they're saying doesn't come close yeah. <laughs> to what Ingersoll, to the kind of uh, the, the level on which Ingersoll is hurling venom at, at the at these religious movements. And yet and yet Ingersoll is beloved and cherished by a lot of people. You know, he had fans amongst the religious. Well, I mean, the, the, the okay, so there's the other issues that he has in his constellation are uh, anti-slavery, of course, because he fought in the Civil mm-hmm. War, women's rights. Uh, I believe he was anti-capital punishment as well. The point is that he wasn't just, I'm anti-religion. And right. that's his entire yeah. message. It was a, it was an entire worldview, humanism, essentially. Right. So yeah. rather than just being the great agnostic, I would say what unites a lot of his issues is that he's, he was the great, yeah, progressive and humanist. Yeah. The Ingersoll, what I was mentioning about the constellation of his worldview was that, um, that's, has to do with a lot of the research that I look at too. And I came across, I've, I've been coming across more frequently people that have linked together Things like religious, political, and philosophical worldviews. And there's an article I wanted to share with people that really crystallizes that uh, in a kind of a neat empirical way. And it has to do with an issue that we're known for taking on before in the past. And that has to do with people's belief in free will and determinism mm. and how it fits into their broader worldview with things like religion and their sense of things like justice – uh, retributive versus, you know, consequential justice, uh, standards for judging yourself and versus other people. This is a, um, an article that came out. The author's name were Carrie and Paulus, and it's in the Journal of Personality, and they talk about the worldview implications for having beliefs in free will and or determinism. Uh, worldviews with things like politics and religion. And what I thought was interesting about this was is that they found, like we've talked about in the show before, that when people have – people usually associate free will beliefs with like happy joy and, oh, you can change infinitely and that sort of positive things and that determinists <laughs> are these like gloomy, nothing right. you do matters. It turns out that when you get past philosophical beliefs, which place those things on a on a binary one continuum that is to the extent that you believe in free will, you're not a determinist. That's the way that we've been talking about in our show. If you realized that things were determined, you wouldn't believe in free will. One of the things that this article found was that on on a popular level, people don't distinguish, uh, don't uh, make that binary distinction that some people hold both free will beliefs and deterministic beliefs. So it's a kind of compatibilist. They're compatibilist. Yeah, yeah, but but not like compatibilism the way we talk about it. No, not in a philosophical sense. um, The article pointed out that this was very much happened a lot of times in a religious context. They were Mm -hmm. saying that kind of the precedent for this is, of course, religious groups that they believe in the sovereignty of God, Right. right, which actually gels with a kind of Fatalism, a deterministic fatalism, right. uh, uh, but that they also believe that their own, they're responsible for their own actions at the same time. And the article points out, you know, like, like 
many religious believers have no problem entertaining both notions at the same time. Yeah, so their, their measure actually isolated different scales of free will and determinism. So their free will scale was things like people can overcome obstacles if they want to or mm. things that imply like malleability, plasticity and change. But they also had determinism scales like one was a scientific determinism like your biological makeup influences your personality or right. your upbringing influences. They also had the fatalistic determinism. So like fate yeah. has a plan for you. Um, and then just randomness. There's, there's beliefs that are unpredictability. Life just is – you can't predict it. It's totally random. And they cross-reference those beliefs with things like, first of all, with with worldview beliefs like conservatism and liberalism, religiosity. And as it turns out, like we've been talking about, the free will beliefs tended to correlate with conservative people and religious people. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, to the degree that you're religious, you believe that things are, are – have people have more free will. Whereas as we know, when you're more liberal or less religious, they emphasize things like situational determinism. You're the way that you are because of situational factors rather than a dispositional trait. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, that, so external that, versus internal. Kind of. Yeah. But they went further than this one and looked at things that had to do with responsibility for – uh, for actions like uh, – and in this case, they had things like they gave people samples of like, criminals who have been convicted of molestation or rape or things like that. And they asked how responsible are these people uh, you know, and then as a function of their beliefs in free will and determinism. So they had scenarios that looked at things like how blameworthy is this person and what should their punishment be. And they also did things where they then gave mitigating information. This person themselves, the perpetrator was abused as a child or they had, you know, a psychopathology that could account for it. For most people, as you would imagine, when you hear mitigating factors, you lessen the blame. You yeah. say, even though this person's done some bad things, they've had themselves been victimized or whatever like that. But to the extent that the people had free will beliefs, they, didn't mitigate as much their blame right. for the person, which again probably makes sense if you think about it. If you believe that things are freely chosen and not determined, and I hear that you, you know, have been dropped on your head as a child or whatever, you're a victim of abuse yourself. If I'm a free will believer, I'm going to say, yeah, well, but right. you still chose to do that. Exactly. Right. So in some ways, people that have these free will beliefs are more punitive. On people and hold people responsible for things, and that's reflected in things like this. You know, the punishments that they give to people. This this article was great in that it was kind of a almost a survey of our God thinks like you topics mm-hmm. over the past year. There was a lot in there because it brought up uh, uh, just world belief as well. Yeah. So people that believe that the world is uh, – good good is rewarded, evil is punished. If bad things happen to somebody, it must be because they deserve them or you know, mm-hmm. good things as well. And that, that again correlates with things like your belief in, in, in free will, whereas a determinist would say bad and good things happen. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason. A free will person is almost locked into the worldview. Yeah. If things are freely chosen and you bad things happen to you, well, you must have done – you made your own bed. That was one right. of the surprising things about this study to me though was that um, – uh, well, I, I guess I should back up and say one thing that I really liked about this study was the fact that they did sort out these different types of determinism. They did point out that, uh, well, I can't do anything. You know, our fates are sealed. That's I can't do anything. Yeah. They made a distinction between that and my genes and my environment have conditioned my behavior. Which up is scientific determinism. Right. And we had uh, the older measure really conflated those mm-hmm. two. And we, we'd complained about this on the show several episodes back. 
there were a string of studies that were trying to show that antisocial effects of believing in determinism. When they so were like, just equating it with fatalism, essentially. Right. And they were – when they were lumping it all together. And what was neat about this study is that as soon as you sift those two measures out from each other, mm-hmm. many of those effects just go away. Uh, it, they didn't talk about all the all the things that were in these other articles. There's going to have to be further research. But for example, one that they did talk about was there was this link between determinism and prejudice, hmm. especially of a of an ethnic or sexual prejudices. The what the researchers hypothesized originally was that okay, if you believe in a really strict genetic determinism, right? Um, you're going to be more likely to see biological explanations for everything and see people as shackle- shackled by their gender or their race or some, something like that. Essentialism, that there's an essential yeah. quality inside you that makes you that way. Right. And uh, as soon as they teased out the fatalism from the scientific determinism, it, it became clear that ba- basically that relationship dropped away. The, the fatalistic thing. determinism was uh, was right. correlated with some of the things that are more uh, the nasty things. If people, in other yeah. words, if they say stuff's going to happen, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, that did correlate. But scientific determinism, uh, believing that things are caused by the environment or genetics, um, for example, in the criminal scenario, they were perfectly comfortable saying that the person should still be punished for the sake of like let's yes. say removing them exactly. from consequences for that the is right other people yeah rather than retributive punishment which the free will people endorse so yeah. bad 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 you ought not to have done that the scientific determinism was more like yes the person should go to prison to protect other people exactly. or because right. yeah. you know to uh you know rather than saying that there's something in them that needed to be yeah. punished and and i mean that reinforces what We've been arguing on the show over and over again is that it's not true that a belief accepting determinism means eschewing all moral responsibility. Responsibility and punishment and these other things actually make sense because they're part of the causal mechanisms that do help people to behave well. The the study calls it the consequentialist argument. It suggests that punishment and misbehavior can be justified uh, even without the belief in moral responsibility, instead, punishment is intended to protect society by rehabilitating, deterring, or simply shielding society from criminals. Yeah, so a lot of people, like, they, they are retributive. They, they want to punish the person under the assumption that they could have done otherwise or they ought to have done otherwise, whereas consequentialist right. is merely the consequences of it's your behavior. That, you know, yeah. it's, it's more okay. pragmatic. One one of the – I mean, to actually put this in real terms, like, what were the experiments – one of them was was kind of bothersome to read. It was uh, it was this scenario where a rapist is going to be chemically sterilized, castrated, right, uh, or castrated, right. They deactivate the testosterone, and but to make sure that there was no real consequentialist payoff, it also included information that you know. And by the way, this is completely ineffective in stopping these behaviors. Which, in, and by the way, in the many in many cases, it is. But simply cutting off the testosterone supply in many cases doesn't diminish the person's f- capability to be huh. a sexual offender. Yeah. Hmm. And so, what, by informing the, the point of, of informing people that was to take away any type of function of hey, right. maybe chemically castrating them will stop them. They were saying no, it probably won't work to do that. Yeah. And what was so even even after explaining that. 
that to people. Yeah, the the free will group was like, yeah, go ahead, stare, you know, castrate them anyways. And I think What's that's the, that's yeah. seen in, in America too with with a, a very highly punitive justice thing where it, we've all basically admit that prisons are not about just rehabilitating or maybe keeping society safe. They're often about um, yes, let's stick it to them for what they did. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot, and the lock them up is seen as a punishment for, you know, for freely chosen crime. Um, but I think what's, what's interesting, uh, the other thing about this that I thought was interesting was, like I mentioned, the, the constellation between things like conservatism, mm-hmm. just world beliefs, and then their free will beliefs. So let me just read a short passage in their conclusion. They said, a greater tendency to believe in free will was linked to higher levels of authoritarianism, religiosity, just world belief, and conservative moral foundations. Those who believe in free will are more rigid about holding themselves and others to that moral code. Not coincidentally, that moral code is a traditional conservative one. Although they did mention, though, this interesting other possible causal direction and that is if you see the system um as something that to be perpetuated things are the way they are because they they're they benefit me right it behooves you to believe in free will because that then then you would say okay uh i'm going to assign the attribution to you that you freely chose your behavior because that's the only way i can make my worldview consistent and work uh that is that they need have the need to justify the current establishment and you'd be threatened about the fact that the system could collapse so they said to hold those re- uh, responsible who threaten the system including criminal offenders conservatives are motivated to assign free will to others free will belief entails punishment for retributive rather than consequentialist reasons yeah mm-hmm. and and they even suggest uh they even suggest at the end of the at the end of the article future experiments that could tease out what really is the causal direction there. Is it free will belief and that sort of thing is driving a kind of conservatism or is conservatism uh, maintained by a free will belief? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and they actually come up with some really cool ideas at the end as to just how you could test uh, which which theory is correct? I see this all the time in my classes too. When I cover topics, let's say like homosexuality and like whether it's biological versus chosen, that there are some people who believe obviously that that you know like really you hear this all the time from religious people that somebody chooses a homosexual lifestyle, uh, and and then we often think of that they have that sort of factual belief first, and that dictates their opinions of you. That is, if I first believe that sexual attraction is chosen, then that way I would say, well, then you're icky because you choose something that's wrong. Whereas if you look at it the other way, I first decide that you're icky. Now, that would be pretty a bad person if I discriminated against you because of something you had no control over. Therefore, you have control over it. That is, you first decide that yeah. you like or yeah. don't like something, or you're fir- in this case with this article, you, you first decide on your worldview, this is the way things should be. Then you formulate your free will determinist of beliefs on the basis of that. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Which is Probably, my guess is probably how it happens. So I don't yeah, want to help out poor people or yeah. people that are prone to you know uh, criminal offenses because they deserve that. Hmm. Therefore, they must have chosen. It. And here's yes. here's all the intellectual stuff that I need to back myself up and reduce yeah. my dissonance over this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess to, just to summarize, there's uh, there's some really interesting work that's like this out there that draws together a lot of these different things that we talk about under a broader. Worldview. It's not just that you can separate somebody's religious, pol- political, and even scientific views. They seem to be correlated with each other. Mm-hmm. But uh, can I tack on one interesting thing there? You're the editor. Scientific determinism at the end of the article 
was the one that was uncorrelated with the conservative liberal <laughs> spectrum. The type of determinism we're endorsing, I, you know, I don't want to rush to pat myself on the back too much, but is could we say that maybe people who arrive at that kind of worldview are arriving at, at it for more just, hey, look, this is what the data seems to be saying? Uh, or they're not politically motivated to accept that worldview? Is that something we could draw from that finding or is that overreaching? I think that for, for many people, let's say, like you mentioned, that there's a, maybe a weak, I think they find a weak negative correlation between scientific determinism and like religiosity. That is, mm-hmm. the, to the extent that somebody believes in science as a causal factor, it was weakly related negatively to the, the, the mm-hmm. people were, were less religious. Which is you more s- what we would predict, I think. Yeah, the, but what, what, you, you see people that in the abstract they acknowledge science, that is, they'll say yes, I believe in, and even, even highly religious people will say yes, clearly there's genetics, mm-hmm. there's upbringing, most responsible people say that. But when you tie it to a specific issue, I'm wondering whether they often maintain that. That it, it's one thing to say I believe that genetics and upbringing influence personality. It's another to say that it influenced you just what you just did, mm, or your right. sexual orientation, or your criminal behavior. My, I, I don't have the data yet to back this up, but my supposition with this is that often somebody can agree that things are causal in the abstract, exactly. but not in any one specific instance. And if that instance but... would threaten my views, I bet you that person would back away from that. Hmm. Take like global warming or you know, like abortion. You have these guys, you, you often see them on TV like these Republican politicians who are like medical doctors or, you know, they're, they're scientifically trained. But then when it comes to that issue, they're, they drop the science. They mm-hmm. kick it to the curb. Yeah. So there was you know, like that dude that was going off about how evolution is from the devil. He was a medical doc. He was on like the science and technology committee on the Congress or like some of the people that are like pediatricians who – what they typically do I would imagine is is endorse science in the abstract but then in any given issue twist it to, to meet their ends. Mm-hmm. Well – Interesting one. I don't think we're. Uh, I don't think this is the last time we'll talk about this study either, because there's a, a lot of a lot of interesting details in there that need to be unraveled. And we should say the name of the study. The study is "Worldview Implications of Believing in Free Will and/or Determinism: Politics, Morality, and Putativeness" uh, by Jasmine M. Carey and and Delroy L. Paulus 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 uh, of the University of British Columbia. So we're going to wrap up the show today with a brief props. Okay. Yeah, so there's this there's this man named Aaron Jackson who recently bought a house in Topeka, Kansas. He runs a nonprofit group called Planting Peace. And so he recently bought a house in Topeka, Kansas with plans of uh, turning it into a, an LGBT um, museum. And so what he's done is he's painted the house to look like the uh, gay pride symbol, the the rainbow the flag, rainbow. right? Like e- um, yeah, each each little panel is a different right. color of the rainbow. It's- now this is a already a, a cool story, but but uh, to add something, I think it, the most interesting thing about this is that it's actually directly across the street from the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> Fred Phelps, God um, hates fags. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. So I guess what this actually <laughs> how this actually happened is he was on Google Earth looking to locate the church for some reason and he realized that the the house right across the street has a giant for sale sign on it. So he he bought it uh with with that goal and and now it's just a 
big big gay pride uh, flag essentially. See, when I when window. I found that story, I wondered like just in a real estate thing that you're let's say you're shopping for a house in the greater Topeka area and you're like, wow, this is cheap. Yeah, and, what you, the, and hell? the realtor was, but the realtors are very cagey, and you're like, whoa, <laughs> everything seems fine here. Nothing's wrong with it. Does the basement have a leak? Um, no, no. Was Does somebody the roof murdered have a leak? here? Was somebody I, I, murdered here? No, 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 no. Just fine. Great neighborhoods. Okay, well, and then you turn around and you're like, oh, <laughs> who lives there? I've seen those guys on TV. Yeah, no. God was, hates neighbors. Apparently, the, the Westboro Baptist <laughs> Church has uh, has come out in support of it. Uh, they uh, they bring their message. They say, "We thank God for the sodomite rainbow house." <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what, like, some years from now when the Westboro place puts their house up for sale, are they going to have the usual sign that says, you know, uh, for sale, price reduced, and then have their usual placards in the back of it, like, and God hates, God hates, God hates overpriced real, real estate, so. They'll tack something on the sign. They'll just tack it onto their own sign. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah, I thought that was pretty Uh, funny. And a museum, nonetheless. I didn't realize yeah. they were going to be making it into a that's museum. The, that's the uh, the plan, apparently. I don't know how. To- the, the Westboro people have to realize by this point that they've completely failed in their mission. That they're one of the greatest promoters of of the gay rights agenda that's out there. Because well, that you're assuming that their mission is utilitarian. It might right. just be to to, to yeah. circle the wagons on their own little yeah. camp. Yeah. But I just now I'm imagining in future Saturday afternoons and a fine fall with the leaves in the yard that they'll be out there raking their leaves and then across the street. Howdy neighbor. <laughs> Howdy neighbor. A lot of pleasant weather we've been having. <laughs> rake your leaves. Yeah. Sodomite. They'll, they'll navigate that cognitive dissonance and some. We yeah. brought you a fruit cake. <laughs> Would you like to buy some cookies? Oh, well, on that note, let's uh, let's call it a day. Okay. Yeah, you can find us at doubtcast.org or you can follow us on Twitter at, at doubtcast. Um, also, you can find our YouTube channel um, with the name being doubtcast. Stay tuned. We'll have some more episodes of Reasonable Doubts coming up soon. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Lighten up, Francis. Yeah, yeah. We got to do a Stripes reference. And you guys call me Bergoglio, I'll kill you. And you homos touch me, I'll kill you. (laughs) I need you. Ooh. You just made the list, buddy. I'm hung over to do this. Maybe if we got him drunk, he would have state-dependent memory recall. You never know. How was it getting your ass handed to you? Uh, Are you going to cut that out? (laughs) I'm going to cut. Jeez. That's last night's gin talking. All right. So I'll act as if that part was we're going to edit out Jeremy's drunken uh, breakdown and tirade, (laughs) his sobbing uh, about how he's not appreciated. And then we'll pick up with this. Um, So wait, wait, wait. wait. My sobbing that I'm not appreciated? It's all in there.
I don't li- – dear listener, that. we will spare you the pathetic breakdown of a once proud man. <laughs> Look into your own heart and see if there's never been a moment of your own decompensation into a pool of nothingness. 